please turn in the Bible to Genesis 41. As has been mentioned, we are continuing our study. And as Pastor Steve mentioned, we have seen Joseph go down into the pit at the hands of his brothers. We've seen him raised up out of the pit and sold into slavery. Even in that place of slavery, we've seen Joseph promoted. We've seen him placed in a very high position in the house of Potiphar. And then once again, he returns to a pit. He's sent to prison. And while in prison, even there, God is with him, we were told. And he's once again raised up to a place of leadership in that prison. And in our last study, we looked at him in this prison, and he was joined by two officials from Pharaoh's court, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and Pharaoh's chief baker. Both of him, were told, had committed offenses against Pharaoh, and Pharaoh became very angry with them and sent them to the prison that was in the house or near the house of the captain of the guard. It's interesting that these two men were not executed, but by God's providence, they were sent to this prison, and in this prison, they were put under the care of Joseph. Now, that's not unusual, seeing that we learn that Joseph was indeed the, the sort of the leader of the prison, but what was unusual was that it was the captain of the guard, Potiphar, who placed him in uh, in sort of oversight over them and as minister to them while they were in prison. At a certain point during their time in prison, we're told they both dreamed a dream and woke up disturbed the next day and looked troubled by the dreams that they had. And Joseph, seeing that he could tell that there was something wrong with them, didn't sort of let it pass by him. He asked them, what is, what's troubling you? And they answered, we've had these dreams, but we have no one to interpret the dreams for us. We read this in verse 8 of chapter 40 from Joseph. Do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. And think about that. Joseph, who is in this prison, and some could say largely due to the dreams that he had, that he shared with his family, is willing to hear the dreams of this chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And so he interprets both of their dreams for them. The chief cupbearer, he tells them that in three days he will return to service. Uh, he will return to the court of Pharaoh. And he asks him very plainly, when you are restored, please remember me. The chief baker he interprets his dream and tells him honestly that his life will end in three days. He will be executed. Chapter 40, we see at the end all that Joseph has foretold from the interpretation of these dreams comes to pass. Pharaoh has a birthday party. He restores the chief cupbearer and he has executed the chief baker. And at the end of chapter 40, we're told that the chief cupbearer forgets Joseph. And so, once again, Joseph, who has gone from the pit 
to slavery, to promotion, back to the pit, now is still in the pit, forgotten. Not remembered by the chief cupbearer. But tonight's passage is once again a testament of God's prevailing grace, displaying God's power to overcome what in human terms would be seen as insurmountable obstacles to accomplishing what he has set in place. And as we also consider all that we will see, it will also be amazing that all throughout this time, God has preserved Joseph from being crushed by the circumstances that he has gone through. So with that as introduction, let us stand as we will read portion of Genesis chapter 41. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. He fell asleep, and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Please be seated. In tonight's passage, we will see God's plan revealed, Joseph remembered. Secondly, we'll see God's plan proclaimed, Joseph's faith displayed. Thirdly, we'll see God's plan received, Joseph promoted. Fourthly, God's plan implemented, Joseph's past remembered. And God's plan confirmed, Joseph's dreams partially fulfilled. So let's first look at God's plan revealed, Joseph remembered, in verses 1 through 14. In verse 1, we are told that two whole years have passed since Joseph interpreted the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And if we think about it in our own terms, it's exactly two years this month where we moved into this facility. And so think about all that has transpired in your life from the time when we moved here and all that was entailed with doing that to now. Consider all the changes that have occurred in your life, all of the major changes. I'm, I'm looking, I'm thinking about college students who went off to college for the first time. I'm thinking of us growing a year older and all of the Various things that have occurred to us in the last two years. Now imagine, instead of experiencing all that we've experienced, that you've been in a prison. Knowing someone that you had done good for has completely forgotten you. 
Joseph continued on in his life, I'm sure, recognizing that his hope of being freed is probably dead. One day went by, there was probably hope. One week, one month, and then eventually he probably thought, this is never going to change. It's then that we're told that Pharaoh has two dreams. Once again, in this last part of the Genesis book, we see a pair of dreams playing a central role in the narrative. Joseph, he had two dreams. The chief cupbearer and the chief baker each had a dream. And now Pharaoh has two dreams, and it will be the central part of today's narrative. In his first dream, Pharaoh stood by the Nile, which Ian Duguid in his commentary said was the source of Egypt's prosperity. Every year, whether it rained in Egypt or not, the Nile would overflow its banks, depositing rich silt, watering the crops, and providing good grazing. And so as Pharaoh standing by the Nile, it would not have been unusual for him to see seven attractive and plump cows near the Nile. They were attractive and plump because they had good grazing there. They came out of the water and, and began to graze by the Nile. Told that the seven well-fed cows were then joined by seven ugly and thin cows. Or malnourished cows. While they are there, the seven ugly and thin cows eat the attractive and plump ones. So you can imagine the scene. It, it just doesn't make sense. And so Pharaoh wakes up. Then he goes back to sleep and has another dream. It says in that dream, seven plump ears of grain, very nice ears of grain grow up. And then they are swallowed up by seven thin and scorched ears of grain. These dreams troubled Pharaoh when he woke up the next morning, and because dreams and their interpretation played a major role in Egyptian life, Pharaoh calls all the magicians and all the wise men together and tells them his dreams, but no one can interpret them. It was not uncommon for Egypt to have professional dream interpreters, people who could hear your dream and give you the interpretation of it, and it was important because it would help you to determine which, which decision to make, which way to go when, when you came to a crucial point. But here we're told that none of the magicians, none of the wise men can interpret the dream. Look at verse 9. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Now imagine, you're the chief cupbearer, and you are serving in the court of Pharaoh. 
and you are hearing wise man after wise man say, I don't know what this dream means, and you hear magician after magician and professional dream interpreter after professional dream interpreter. It says, all of the wise men, the magicians of Egypt, were gathered before Pharaoh. And if you were in his place, you likely began to remember when you had a dream. But you also likely remember where you had that dream and the circumstances surrounding where you had that dream. Where was he? He was in prison. Why was he in prison? Because he had upset Pharaoh. And so now, do you bring up this very bad memory in the midst of this situation which does not seem to be solving itself? But nonetheless, the cupbearer speaks up. And first, he indicates that he remembers his offenses. That word literally means his sins. And while it's not clear whether he's referring to the specific offense that he committed against Pharaoh that caused him to be sent to prison, or his having delayed in telling Pharaoh that he knew someone who could interpret dreams, or his having forgotten Joseph for two years, he then tells Pharaoh all about Joseph and what transpired in the prison. And then after Joseph correctly interpreted his and the chief baker's dreams, he says that everything that he said came about. Note that in describing Joseph, he tells Pharaoh that Joseph is a Hebrew. He's a foreigner. He's not Egyptian. That he was a servant of the captain of the guard, who Pharaoh likely would have known was Potiphar. But we get a sense of how desperate Pharaoh had become to have this dream interpreted when we read in verse 14, Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. But as one verse containing two sentences for us is life-changing for Joseph. We should read God's word closely and consider the fact that we aren't given in Scripture anything of what Joseph was doing on that day. But can you imagine, as he is in that prison, someone comes and says, Pharaoh wants to see you. Not the prison guard, not Potiphar, Pharaoh wants to see you. It says he quickly was brought out of the pit and he shaved himself because the Egyptians were clean shaven. Likely shaved his head as well as his beard as a Jew or as a Hebrew, I should say. He would have grown his beard out. He would have likely had hair. So he, sh he shaves all of his hair off, and he changes his clothes. The one who previously had his coat torn off by his brothers in hatred, the one who previously had his garment torn from him because of the lust of Potiphar's wife, is now changing his clothes to meet Pharaoh most powerful man 
in the world. And in the next section, we see God's plan proclaimed and Joseph's faith displayed. Look at verse 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Stop there. Think of all of the ways that you might have responded when you heard a statement like this from Pharaoh. You're Joseph. You have interpreted two dreams correctly. And Pharaoh now says to you, I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. One way that Joseph could have responded was, yes, I interpret dreams. I interpreted the dreams of your chief cupbearer who may have been standing right there. I interpreted the dream of the chief baker. So you're right, I can interpret your dream for you. And some could even look to the word of God to validate such a response by citing Proverbs 22:26. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. But instead, what do we read in verse 16? Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Hear how the NSB translates that. Joseph said, It is Nothing to do with me. God will give Pharaoh an answer for his own good. And the NIV translates it this way. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. When human reasoning would say that Joseph should declare his confidence in his ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams so that he might have Pharaoh become confident in him, Joseph tells Pharaoh that he... Joseph cannot do it. Instead, Joseph declares his confidence in God to be able to give the interpretation of the dream to Pharaoh, displaying his faith in God. And verse 16 is the first of 11 times that God is named directly nine times or by inference two times in the passage. The name for God used all nine times is Elohim, which speaks of God's rule over all things. Joseph declares that God's interpretation of Pharaoh's dream will be for Pharaoh's good. Look at verse 17. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the banks of the Nile, Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. Note that Pharaoh adds detail to the dream as he retells it, first noting that he had never seen cows this ugly in all of Egypt. So we get a sense that 
Pharaoh and Egypt had not experienced anything but prosperity. Starving cows were something that was foreign in the mind of Pharaoh. And secondly, he adds that the ugly and thin cows, after eating the attractive and plump ones, didn't change. You would expect that someone or something that's not nourished well would 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 have the effects of eating something seen, but we see that these seven ugly cows and thin cows remained the same. Verse 22, I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk full and good, seven ears withered thin and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them, and the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Pharaoh's description of the dreams ends. You can imagine, all eyes turn to Joseph. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Verses 25 through 32, Joseph gives the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, but notice how he does it. Notice again and again, who does he pronounce? God. Elohim. Joseph says that God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do in verse 25. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do in verse 28. The doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed or established by God in verse 32. God will shortly shortly bring about what he, what's been foretold in verse 32. In essence, Joseph is saying to Pharaoh, God is going to do something whether you like it or not. Though you may think that you are the all-powerful one, you are not. God is going to bring about all these things. There's nothing that you or your magicians or your uh, wise men can do to stop what God has intended to do. God's plan is clearly proclaimed. Joseph's faith in God is clearly displayed. Do we act in the same way in our generation as Joseph acted in his? The Bible tells of God's plan of his coming judgment on the world and his having sent Christ to 
save man from the coming judgment through Christ's righteous life, his atoning death, and victorious resurrection. And while we may not find ourselves in situations as dramatic as Joseph's standing before Pharaoh, we clearly have a plan of God to proclaim. We clearly have a salvation of God to clearly proclaim. And so when given the opportunity, do we clearly display our faith in God by clearly proclaiming his plan of coming judgment and his having fulfilled the plan of salvation? And as we return to the passage, we see that Joseph's boldness did not end with his interpretation of Pharaoh's dream. Remember, all he was asked to do was to tell Pharaoh what the dream meant. Look at verse 33 as Joseph continues to speak. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming, and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities, and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Joseph quickly transitions from interpreter to counselor. He was not asked to give counsel. He was not asked for what he thought Pharaoh should do. But here's Joseph, who only a few hours before was a prisoner. Only a few hours before likely thought that all hope was lost. Now standing before Pharaoh, the leader of the nation of Egypt, and declaring that God was about to bring famine upon the land, and that Pharaoh should follow his instructions. The boldness of him. And what was that plan, that proposal that Joseph laid out? That, he sh that Pharaoh should select a discerning and wise man to be over the land. Verse 33. He should appoint overseers over the land. In verse 34. That Pharaoh should take one-fifth of the produce of the land, in verse 34. In short, raise taxes. <laughs> raise taxes. Verse 35, gather the food during the good years and store it in preparation for use during the bad years. In essence, Joseph proposes what you hear many leaders today refer to as a rainy day fund a reserve of resources that can be used when an emergency arises. And so in this instance, the emergency uh, the emergency would not come for seven years, but during those years of plenty, people are told you need to give to Pharaoh one-fifth of your produce. Now, we don't know at that time what is being given by the Egyptians, but you can imagine that if our leaders come to us and say they want more of our money, what is likely to be your response? You have enough. 
And especially think about it. These were years of plenty. Think about the people's response to Noah when he was building the ark, saying that rain was coming. They, they laughed at him and thought he was a fool. So, what, so imagine the great risk that many people thought that Joseph was taking, telling Pharaoh to gather more from the people during these years of plenty. Just as Joseph had displayed confidence in the interpretation that God gave him for the chief cupbearer's dream, remember he told him that when you're restored, remember me, Joseph shows that same confidence that his interpretation, Pharaoh's dream, will come to pass. Joseph boldly and faithfully laid out what was to come and what Pharaoh should do in response to the revelation that he received. And in the next section, we see God's plan received and Joseph promoted. Look at verse 37. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh and his servants respond favorably to Joseph's plan. And Pharaoh's description of Joseph as a man in whom is the Spirit of God did not indicate that Pharaoh became a believer in God because of Joseph's words. But Pharaoh clearly acknowledges his recognition of his need to receive what God has fixed and to rightly respond to what God has said. Pharaoh didn't argue with Joseph, nor did he seek to ignore the words of Joseph and appease one of his Egyptian gods. Instead, he declares that God, how interesting it is that Pharaoh says, God, Elohim, the ruler of all things, has shown all these things to Joseph. And therefore, he regards Joseph as a discerning, unwise man. Amazing words to describe this prisoner who was a Hebrew slave. Does Pharaoh even know what he is in prison for? We don't know. Scripture is silent. But he sees that Joseph is discerning and wise. In verse 40, he says that Joseph shall be over his house, that all of his people shall order themselves as Joseph commands. And still in verse 40, and only as regards the throne will Pharaoh be greater than Joseph. And then in verse 41, Joseph is set over all the land of Egypt. Note the similarities between what Pharaoh says here and how Joseph is described during his experiences in Potiphar's house and in the prison. And how ironic it would have been if Potiphar was there looking on as Pharaoh speaks to Joseph in this and not only does Pharaoh use words to indicate Joseph's promotion, he provides the trappings to show Joseph's new authority as well. Verse 42, Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand 
and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck, and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee! Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring, sign of authority, clothes him in garments of fine linen, puts a gold chain around his neck, and then places him in the second chariot. All these representing Joseph's newly granted authority over Egypt. And note once again the garment change. A new garment, garment of authority, is placed on Joseph. But next came the task of implementing God's plan, which we'll see in the next section, along with Joseph's affliction remembered. Look at verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephanath-Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So it's been 13 to 14 years that have passed since we first met Joseph in Genesis 37 2 told in verse 46 that he's now 30 years old. And think about all we've witnessed in those 13 or 14 years of the formative years of this man. Gone through ups and downs. And, verse, and through verse 44 of this chapter, you've seen the momentous change that has come about going from attending to his daily duties in prison to the second in command in Egypt within hours. And even after Joseph's initial meeting with Pharaoh, this section of the passage shows us that Joseph's life continued to change while he implemented the plan that God enabled him to lay out for Pharaoh. And that actually brings us to our first question of the evening. And this is from Richard Belcher's commentary on Genesis. It says, contrast Joseph's lowly position in prison with his exalted position of second in command of Egypt. What kinds of temptations would come with such power? 
What evidence is there that Joseph remained faithful to God? So what kinds of temptations would come with such power? And secondly, what evidence is there that Joseph remained faithful to God? All throughout those 13 years when he was in difficult circumstances, Joseph was tempted, or could have been tempted to be bitter. Could have been tempted to forsake God. Think of Job's wife's counsel to Job after the many calamities that came upon him in Job 2.9. says, Job's wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Joseph could have been tempted to become bitter. And there are some, from a human standpoint, who would say Joseph had every excuse to become bitter because of all that he had endured. But now that he has been promoted, success can be a temptation as well. Listen to the words of Proverbs 30, verses 7 and 8. It says, Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Success could have made Joseph forsake God, to begin to lean upon his own understanding, or the understanding that he admitted earlier in the chapter to be from God. Instead, all throughout this chapter we've seen Joseph openly declaring to Pharaoh that God is more powerful than Pharaoh. What other temptations might Joseph have faced? Yes, you know. Very good. Were you finished? I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Joseph could have been tempted to misuse his power. He could have gathered food from the people for himself and just the powerful. Listen to the words of Samuel's warning to Israel in 1 Samuel 8, 14 through 17, when Israel asked for a king. Verse 14, this is Samuel warning the people. He says, he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. You will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. This is Samuel speaking many, many years after this. But what do we know? The heart of man does not change. And that power corrupts. So Joseph could have been tempted to misuse that power. But what do we see Joseph doing? Just the opposite. In verse 47, we're told during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of these seven years. 
which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He didn't take the food from those places and transport it far away. It says he put in every city the food from the fields around it. Note also how the gathering of the grain is described in verse 49. It says that Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Does that phrase, like the sand of the sea, sound familiar? Didn't God promise Abraham and Jacob that his, their descendants would be as numerous as the sand of the sea? In that same promise, was it not said, and isn't Joseph partially fulfilling the promise that Abraham's descendants would be a blessing to all the world? So yes, Joseph could have misused his power by gathering food and the people for himself and just the powerful. How else might Joseph have been tempted to misuse his power? There's another way that Joseph could have misused his power. Yes, Pastor Steve. To punish or retaliate against Potiphar's wife for wrongfully imprisoning him. He could have sought revenge against those who wronged him. We do not see Joseph seeking to use his power to avenge himself against Potiphar's wife or Potiphar. And even though we have seen many sort of indications that Potiphar believed in the innocence of Joseph, nonetheless, he is the one that placed Joseph in the prison. We don't see Joseph seeking revenge on the chief cupbearer, who's forgotten about him. He goes about the business of doing the job that God has called him to do. And the last way that Joseph could have been tempted is that Joseph could have been tempted to forsake his heritage as a member of the covenant people of God. Just as Daniel will experience with Nebuchadnezzar, Joseph is given a name change by Pharaoh. He's given an Egyptian name that likely means God speaks and lives. Joseph receives an Egyptian, nope, not a Canaanite, an Egyptian wife, Asenath, who is the daughter of the prison of priest of On. Bruce Walke notes in his commentary, the high priest at On held the exalted title, greatest of seers. Joseph thus marries into the elite of Egyptian nobility. But despite all of this, despite the Egyptian name, despite the Egyptian wife, Joseph gives his sons Hebrew names. And note, Joseph names his sons. Unlike his father, who allowed his wives to give his children, their names. Manasseh, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my afflictions. And so though he is in Egypt, he remembers his heritage. He remembers that he is a member of the covenant people of God. He remembers 
God's faithfulness. And as we come to the end of the passage, we see God's plan confirmed and Joseph's dreams partially fulfilled. Verse 53. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. The seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. First verses of this section indicate that the years of plenty did indeed come to an end. Just as God through Joseph had spoken. So we see that God's plans, his purposes always come to pass and his word can be trusted. And when the people came to Pharaoh, he sent them to Joseph. He sent them to the one who had given him not only the revelation that caused him to know what was to come, but the plan as to how to respond to it. And as they came before Joseph, they would have bowed before him as a sign of respect. But even as this occurs, Joseph's dreams are only partially fulfilled because the complete fulfillment of his dreams, that his father and brothers will come and bow before him, is still yet to come. Brings us to our next question. Consider, and this is also from Richard Belcher's commentary, consider how Joseph has been blessed by God throughout his life, but then how adverse circumstances brought him low again. What does this teach God's people concerning God's ways? Think of all the blessing that has come in Joseph's life, but also the adverse circumstances that brought him low, and what does this teach God's people concerning God's ways? Yes, Tim. Anyone else? Yes, Eva. That he will never forget us. Anyone else? Well, this passage clearly tells us that God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your, your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Think of the hatred of the brothers. Think of the pit. Think of the slavery. Think of the false imprisonment, or the false charges and the wrongful imprisonment. Think of the forgotten Yes. Think on all of these things. And yet, what was God doing? He was doing all of this from Joseph to this place. 
God can use even the worst circumstances to bring about great good. Many commentators mention the hymn, God moves in a mysterious way in connection with this passage. Particularly verse 5, which says this, His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. How bitter the bud must have tasted. Romans 13 to 14. Secondly, you see in God's kingdom the way up is by going down. Think of 17-year-old Joseph being in this place. The one who was not showing much concern about how his brothers would take his dreams and openly announce, I'm going to rule over all of you one day. Was this man ready to be second in command? No. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verses 25 to 27, Jesus called them to him and said, You know what the rulers of the Gentiles or you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever must be first among you, or whoever would be first among you, must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. James 4.10 tells us, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. And then this also teaches us, as I was so greatly reminded by Pastor Brian Borgman, who preached on this, but I was reminded of this. He says, Our memory of past wrongs and past hurts does not necessarily disappear. But what this chapter tells us is that we do not have to be defined by them. Notice the names that Joseph gives his children. He calls one Manasseh, saying that God has caused me to forget my affliction. So the memory of the affliction is still there. The hardship, that memory doesn't go away But God has made him to forget it. He is not defined by it. He's not held prisoner by it. And then, not only is he not held prisoner, God makes him fruitful in the land of his affliction. He knows he is a foreigner in this land. He knows that it were not for God, he would still be a slave in this land. But God has caused him to be fruitful in the land, his affliction. And it's a reminder to us as well that we may not fully forget memories of past pain, the memories of past hurts, but we do not have to be imprisoned by it. 
we do not have to find our, our identity in our pain. For we have been made new creations in Christ. Yes, we remember the pain. Yes, we remember the wrongs that have been done. But Christ, in Christ, we have a new heart. We have a new nature. We have our, uh, an ability to have our eyes set upon God, knowing that indeed He is good, and that He is doing all things for His glory. So our last question of the evening, and fortunately we're almost out of time, so I'm going to run through what I have here. It says, how should the Genesis 41 narrative affect our lives? One is, I, I say we should keep our eyes set on God always. The evidence of Genesis 41 tells us that Joseph, in fact, did this. He kept his eyes set on God always, so that even when he stood before Pharaoh, he could still say with confidence that God will accomplish his purpose. His dream had not been fulfilled yet, but he could say confidently, God will accomplish his purpose. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3 says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Word of God tells us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And I think I've shared this analogy before. If you've ever gone to Niagara Falls, you've stood sort of on the side of Niagara Falls, or if you've gone on the boat and done the whole experience of Niagara Falls, you see how powerful Niagara Falls is. You stand before it and you are dwarfed. But if we are seated with Christ in heavenly places, where are we? We are in him. And what's Christ's vantage point of Niagara Falls? He looks down and he sees it as nothing but a small pool of water. How our perspective changes when we keep our eyes set upon God. Secondly, we should learn to bless and seek God in all circumstances. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13 says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things to him who strengthens me. Joseph didn't have this verse. Joseph didn't have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. But his life was a testimony to that. He learned what it meant to be able to be brought low, to be able to abound, 
to be content in every circumstance. We should do the same as well. And finally, we should be in awe of God and the one whom he sent who is greater than Joseph. Some would use this part of the life of Joseph to then turn it into, see, God intends greatness for you. As if Joseph's becoming second in command is the end of the story, is all that God intended for Joseph's life. But totally neglecting the fact that God had an even bigger purpose. That he brought Joseph into Egypt because he knew the danger of his people who were in Canaan of intermarrying. Remember Judah, he had already begun to intermarry amongst the Canaanites. But what did God want of his people? He wanted them to be a separate and distinct people unto himself. And so what does he do? He sends Joseph ahead of them. He brings a famine. He causes them to have to go to Joseph. He brings them to Egypt. He allows them to go into slavery and the nation of Israel is brought out of that slavery by God's great arm. And even that is not the end of the story. Because we know that God is doing all of this so that the one who was promised in Genesis 3.15 would come from this people. And so think of all that God has had to orchestrate all of the details of Joseph's life and his family's life and Pharaoh's life and the chief cupbearer's life, all of these things, God is directing. And at the same time, he's upholding the universe. At the same time, he's keeping the sea from washing over the land and, and, and going over its boundaries. At the same time, he already knows the beginning of all things in the end. How great is our God. And while Joseph, yes, will be used to save the lives of many because of what God has done through him, we know that what Joseph provided was only temporary. He provided them with physical food. There was one who would come who is our spiritual food. There is one who would come that would not just simply save physical life, but he would save the souls of those that God loved from before the foundation of the world. And all of this that is being done in this passage is so that we would come to see and come to know the one who is greater than Joseph. Any questions or any comments before we close? Yes, Liz. Yes.
Well, well, yeah, I, I don't know for sure whether Joseph knew that. But at the same time, you remember when the family comes and he is dying, what does he say? When you leave here, take my bones with you. He knew that Egypt was not where they were supposed to be. He knew that Canaan was the promised land. And now whether he knew that that his that that family and the family and the nation that would develop would go into slavery, I wouldn't know that. But it's clear and as you as you said, yes, this is a very amazing moment and we're going to see even more amazing moments as we go through the rest of Genesis where Joseph's family is brought to Egypt and they're treated well. And then what happens? You know in Exodus that the Egyptians forget about Joseph and they make them their slaves for 400 years. Any other questions? Did you have any other questions? Okay. Jared, did I see your hand? Yeah. Um, so I just want to make a, I just want to preface my comment. With, um, you know, in general, when, it's, when it comes to believers and non-believers, um, believers tend to work harder than their jobs. Should. And, and it's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm Question. Well, few of the last week. What evidence is there that Joseph remained faithful to God? As I reflect on Joseph's life, um, he excelled in mm-hmm. every occupation. That's right. Because I'm pretty sure because of his faithfulness to the Lord. Yeah. And I'm reminded of that again in his, in his final vocation, where he's second in command of Egypt. And in the second half of verse 46, it says, Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh like, to all the land of Egypt. Mm-hmm. So he could have. Being second in command could have easily just, um, you know, have, have overseers. But yep. he personally managed. Anyone else? All right, well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we do praise you as the great and mighty God. You are indeed sovereign over all things, as we have witnessed in your word tonight once again. And we thank you for the testimony of Joseph that is before us, that you indeed preserved this man. You indeed allowed him to go through all of these circumstances to bring him to this point. You were faithful to him throughout. And so as we consider his life, we can also know that you will be faithful to bring us to the expected end that you have for us, which is full conformity to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to keep our eyes set upon you, whether we are in times of difficulty right now, or times of blessing, or that our confidence would be in you, our faith would be in you, our trust would be in you. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to always be in awe of who you are. Lord, we confess that we so often have a much lower view of you than we should. But from our study of your word tonight, once again, lift our eyes higher and cause us, even as we go to prayer, to know that there is nothing that is impossible for you. Lord, we do thank you once again for your word, and we pray that you would 
bear fruit from your word in our lives to the glory of your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.